grab your Bibles and flip to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, we're going to look at um, verses 1 through 13. And today we will be talking about the Reformational worldview, and this is part one, and this is on the holiness of God. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, these are the words of God. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to, the, to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called out, while the house of God was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not know. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he said, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is devastated to desolation. And Yahweh has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning, like a terebinth or like an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Let's pray. Our Father and Holy Lord, as we turn to your word, may the Spirit of God rest upon us. Help us to be steadfast in our hearing, in our speaking, in our believing, and in our living. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, it's October, which means it's Reformation season, and next week is uh, officially, technically, Reformation Sunday. And in light of that, I figure we could spend a couple of weeks uh, considering the reasons why it's important for the Church of Jesus Christ to always be reforming. Now, what the Reformers did 500 years ago was remind us that we ought to be reforming in the right direction. It does no good to reform the church if by reform we mean water down the gospel and destroy Christian doctrine. After all, doctrine divides, they say with exclamation. Precisely the point, doctrine should divide. Doctrine should divide. Indeed, it divides much like a scalpel separates the tumor from the organ. We want healthy division. We want healthy division, altogether abolishing that which goes against the Bible, and we want to purify the church into greater holiness and obedience. The Reformation means a lot of things, but at its root, it means a return to the Bible 
a return to the scriptures as our authority. And next week, Lord willing, we're going to examine the five solas of the Reformation. Now this week, I want us to consider the holiness of God because also at the root of Reformational thinking is a deep and abiding respect, awe, and wonder of the nature and character of the triune God. Ultimately, we want a fear of God, which is the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs says, to guide us into the aforementioned holiness and obedience. We want to avoid reducing our relationship with God down to simply reading words in Scripture and detaching ourselves from Him. As good as a practice as it is to read your Bibles, uh, you know, many men died, literally were burned at the stake, so you could have the Word of God in your language sitting in your lap. We should be grateful for that, because even before Luther in 1517, you had men like Jan Hus, who was burned at the stake, William Tyndale, men who were committed to scriptural integrity and biblical practice in the churches, and they died to get you your Bibles. So we want to be grateful for it. But the Reformational worldview is, at its core, a way of living as a response to the Word of God. So it's, it's God's Word that mediates all of human life. God's Word, through creation, through Christ, through Scripture, that mediates our relationships. It mediates our relationship with God, with creation itself, with each other. Now, it's God's law that's for creation and God's norms in creation that establish, a, establish us as a faith-directed people. Um, I shared this yesterday a little bit uh, we, at, the, at the little mini-conference in a Q&A. When you think about when people are toying with things like basic binary distinctions in our world, where you think you can erase what God has put in place that's literally built into our DNA, when you start messing with that, you're really trying to mess with God's law because He has established things the way that they're supposed to be. So we want to know God and we want to hold Him in high regard. We want to have a bigger, more robust vision of God every single day uh, because your God is always too small. <laughs> your God is always too small. How do I know? Do you ever worry? Are you fraught with anxiety? Do you stress out at the simplest things? Then your God is too small because our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. He declares the end from the beginning. He is intimately in every detail. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Your God is always too small, but we, we want to have a high regard for a very big God, and we want that to be in our hearts, in our families, in our churches, and in all the world. So let's look at our passage this morning. Remember that Isaiah was a prophet, and prophets were prosecutors. That was their main job, is to prosecute people. Their main job was to take the Word of God and bring it to bear on the people to, to remind them of God's covenant promises and the ferocity of his judgments. They were heralds of truth and righteousness in a culture of lies and unrighteousness. They were preachers of holiness and repentance. Um, they weren't always well respected. You think of Jeremiah's struggle when he said, hey, Babylon's coming, just let them take you because they're going to take you into exile. And nobody wanted to listen to that nonsense. We're Israel. This is our land. We're children of Abraham. We're supposed to be here. And Jeremiah the prophet is out there telling everybody, 
nah, Nebuchadnezzar's coming, just let it go, because <laughs> you're going to be a conquered people. And they hated Jeremiah for it. But Jeremiah, like Isaiah, was a prophet of repentance, and he was not well-respected. But that's what obstinance usually gets you. Uh, very rarely are we out <laughs> doing ministry and getting the respect that's due to the Lord. Uh, usually, especially at the college, um, once in a while we'll get spit at. <laughs> Usually curse words will come flying. You know, show some respect. If not for me, show deference to the Word of God. But alas, not many people who uh, hate the truth are going to really want to uh, give you, sit you down and buy you a cup of coffee, shall we say. But the world was, and it still is today, a courtroom. It's a giant courtroom, and all men stand before the bench of God's perfect holiness. Isaiah is probably the well, most well-known of the prophets, both because the book of Isaiah is so large, um, but also because there is quite a bit of foreshadowing of Jesus Christ in the book. As far as the timeline is concerned, just to remind you a little bit historically, Isaiah ministered to Israel for roughly 60 years, and he ministered from around 745 B.C., to 690 BC. This is roughly 300 years after King David. Isaiah's father was Amoz, and it's possible that he was born in Jerusalem, and it's highly likely that Isaiah was a member of a royal family. Uh, scholars assume, based on evidence, that, that Isaiah's, Isaiah's access to the kings, very easily getting a meeting with the kings, was probably based on social status, so he probably, he probably had high regard in that, in that sense. Isaiah lived during the reigns of four kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. You had Uzziah, then Jotham, Ahaz, and then Hezekiah. Regarding Isaiah's personal life, he was married to the prophetess, but we don't know her name. Um, they had two sons, Shair Jashub, great name for a boy. It means a remnant shall return. And then in Isaiah 8, we learn about Mahar Shalahashbaz. I still think someone needs to name their son that. Uh, we don't know much else about Isaiah, but we do know those few things. Isaiah was a social critic, and we should be social critics, not just to lament and complain, although lamenting is a biblical concept. But he was a man of conscience, one author says. His, his actions, his very bold actions before King Ahaz, and, and even uh, walking nearly naked in Jerusalem in chapter 20, uh, that served as a warning of the coming judgment. They were going to be stripped away, and he was illustrating that. All of that was demonstrating his diligence, and, and Isaiah was concerned about the holiness of God and the holiness of the people of God. And that's why we, we engage the world the way we ought to engage the world, because we have concern for the holiness of God. Um, and, and by the way, in chapter 20 there, he essentially laid aside his preaching robe and he walked around in his tunic underwear without shoes. And he was signifying a morally and socially destitute man. That was Israel. And he was illustrating that. But that's what Isaiah's ministry was, was really all about, the holiness of God. Holiness as it pertains to God's transcendency, as we'll see shortly, Holiness in God's relationship to judgment and sin against uh, his judgment against sin and evil, and holiness in relationship to salvation and the deliverance of God's people. 
So the, the point of the entire book is basically the highlighting of Yahweh's holy reign as king over Israel and the world. Now, after there was this Assyrian debacle with the northern kingdom, Isaiah's focus was getting Judah prepared to repent, lest Assyria, which was the ruler of the world at that time, would come and threaten them. And in fact, we know under the leadership of King Hezekiah, um, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, he did invade Judah. He besieged Jerusalem, and, and Judah was only uh, basically spared of that judgment because uh, Hezekiah repented. So judgment is, is only paused when the people take note of the holiness of God. So we are much a nation today under the judgment of God, and so it would definitely be, be wise for us to consider God's holiness and trying to align ourselves with it. Now here in chapter 6, Israel, or Isaiah is Israel in this sense. He's representing the nation, uh, sinners in need of deliverance. Uzziah died around 740 BC, and Uzziah's death mirrors Judah's impending death. Um, so Uzziah is gone, and what will Israel do as a nation? Will they repent and be restored? And the vision Isaiah sees here in this chapter is, according to the Gospel of John, a vision of the triune God, specifically the glory of the pre-incarnate Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. This is Jesus that he sees, according to John's Gospel. The scene, of course, is simply majestic. The Lord is high and lifted up, which speaks of his sovereignty and transcendency. Uh, we are confronted with a God who is far above us, far above us. He is wholly other. He is entirely distinct and wholly perfect. We see the train of his robe filling the temple. Uh, the robe was a symbol of authority, and his robe is immense, and it fills the entire temple, and we cannot see the Lord in his entirety. No man can see the Lord in his entirety uh, and live to talk about it. He is sovereign, we see, and since he's sitting on a throne, he is in the seat of infinite, unending authority and power. So Isaiah is in the heavenly temple. God fills this temple with his presence. The earthly temple is merely a copy, but yet here God fills the earth with his glory. Remember that the earth is his footstool. So the temple was a view of the world. It was kind of a microcosm of the greater world. So God, right now, he is in heaven. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, and the, the earth is his footstool. And so his authority fills the entire world. His glory does. Now we have a picture of the angels here, the seraphim. The word seraphim means burners. They're burners. And they are fiery, heavenly beings. They each have six wings. So really remarkable uh, creation. They stood above God. However, certain things are covered by their wings. Uh, two wings cover the face of the burner, the fiery one. And they can't look upon God either. And that's what they do every day, all day. They're there with God in heaven. But some of their wings cover, cover their eyes. Um, their ears, of course, are still open because they are to hear from God. Their feet are covered because they only move in the direction that God commands them. One called to another, apparently they, they communicate in the throne room of God, one called to another and cried out to the thrice holy God, 
This is one of the burners saying this. Holy, holy, holy. This is in verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. When the Bible repeats itself, it's meant to draw attention to the ineffable nature of God. God is described here with three repetitious words. Holy, holy, holy. Um, He's never described as gracious, gracious, gracious. He's never described as loving, loving, loving. He is holy, holy, holy. The holiness of God is so far out of the reach of our minds that we really can't even fully comprehend it. We can only repeat it three times. This is total, infinite, and unique majesty on a grand scale. Now, when this happens, the foundations of the threshold shook at God's voice. Isaiah can only see architecture. He sees the heavenly beings. He can't see God because smoke is filling the temple. Talk about a fog machine. Maybe they're on something. The shaking of the temple thresholds are the only response possible given the magnitude of God's holiness. The earth shakes, and so do men. Hebrews talks about this, I believe in around chapter 12, 11 or or 12, about the kingdom of God shakes things of, of the earth in order to only leave what can't be shaken, and that's his kingdom. Isaiah responds in verse 5 with the only response possible. He has peered into the throne room only to be met with glory and conviction. All men who truly meet the Lord are met with glory and conviction. Unclean lips, the least of all the sins, has run up against the Lord of glory, the most magnificent of all holiness. Isaiah says he has, uh, he's a man of unclean lips, and he dwells in a nation with, and a people with unclean lips. Isaiah's unclean lips are the mirror of Israel's unclean lips. So Isaiah sees himself in light of God, but he also sees himself in light of his people. They have sinned too. All have sinned and fallen short of this amazing glory in heaven. And they've sinned a lot too. To talk about the sin with your lips, you think about words that are just words. We utter them. Air moves over our vocal cords and we say them. I mean, there are far worse sins than maybe saying something you shouldn't have. You think of murder. Oftentimes, you know, the, conceivably the most grotesque of all sins. But there's darkness in chapter 5, and now it's met with the blinding light of God's majesty. So only God can restore a nation. That's the point. Only God can forgive a people. Now the burning one, the, a seraphim, flew, t- flew over to Isaiah, and he, or it, took a burning coal from the altar... Remember that the altar is the eternal fire of God's wrath, which is necessary because of his holiness. Because God is holy, wrath is a response to a violation of that holiness. So that's what the altar represents. So he takes the tongs, grabs burning coal, and touches Isaiah's lips. And that's a symbol of the wrath of God being appeased, uh, essentially an atonement moment. His sin is atoned for. Only, God only forgives when satisfaction is made, and satisfaction can only be made when a propitiating sacrifice is present. So the judge has taken Isaiah's sin, all of Isaiah's guilt, and has swallowed it up by his divine grace. After being restored by God, 
The rest of the passage explains Isaiah's commission as he's sent out to minister to Israel. Whom shall I send? Whom shall I send? This is in verse 8. And who will go for us? God says. Isaiah volunteers. Here am I. Send me. He's a restored man, which means now he's a missionary man, right? A restored man is a missionary man. A revived man is a man with a task. And then we get something strange in verse 9 and 10. Isaiah is told to go to spiritually deaf and blind people in order to tell them about something they cannot hear and see. Great mission. You know those people who won't listen, who cannot hear? I want you to preach to them. Have you ever felt like such a futile task? I've been in that position. Most every time we're at George Mason. (laughs) None of you have ears to hear. Your hearts are not inclined to the things of God. But we're going to preach. The description of being deaf and blind, their outer sensory perceptions of, of hearing and seeing still work because faith comes through hearing. But their inner perceptions of understanding and knowing don't align with God. So they, this outer sensory thing with, with, with um, being uh, deaf, being blind, they can't see, they can't hear. But inside, though, they can understand and they can know by God's power. So Isaiah is sent by God to a people who are incapable of hearing and responding to the message that he's supposed to deliver. He's doomed, right? <laughs> Wrong. Truth must go out into the world regardless of its response. So we sow the seeds. God makes it grow. Our job is to give witness. God's job is to divide the heart by the power of the word of God. So Isaiah's task is one of agitation. He's an agitator. He is a disruptor of the, sto- uh, the status quo. Prophets are always disruptors. They are troublemakers like Elijah, whose obtrusive preaching messes with the real troublers of Israel. That was King Ahab. But Isaiah's agitation was, in verse 10, to render the hearts of this people insensitive. So notice there's a, there's a chiasm structure here. Heart, eyes, excuse me, heart, ears, then eyes, then eyes, ears, and heart. There's a pattern there. The prophet must level charges against the whole of the nation and the whole of man. And his charge will drive them either to repentance or to the fullness of iniquity. The preaching will either exacerbate their sinful conviction, and thus they will fill up their own cups, storing up for God's wrath, or it will devastate their sinful disposition, and they will repent. Either way, the preaching must happen, the preaching must go on. For how long, Isaiah asks in verse 11, Until the cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is devastated to desolation. And then look at verse 12. And Yahweh has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, a tithe, and it will again be subject to burning, like a terebinth or like an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. God is chopping down this tree. It's a tree of iniquity all the way down to the stump. He is collecting the tithe and burning the the social order of Israel 
so as to judge them and then forgive them, to bring calamity to them and then to raise them up. It's always death and resurrection. It's always judgment, then restoration. There's hope, but it's not without a fiery judgment of the wrath of God and the holiness of God. He is going to fell this tree, but he's going to do it so that he can raise up the stump of Jesse, and that is Jesus Christ. So how shall we then live? The Reformation in Europe took root because of the preaching of Holy Scripture, and not just because they did that. It had a renewed priority in the life of the church. When the Reformers started to see false doctrine in the Roman church, they realized that part of the problem is the fact that the Word of God preached is not central to the life of the church. So they recovered that. It had a renewed priority. Instead of worship being unintelligible and being something only the professional clergy got to do, oftentimes behind a screen where the rest of the church just watched him sort of behind the screen doing the Lord's Supper, doing kind of all of that on, on their behalf. But instead of that, worship became centered around the preaching of God's Word, and it was the participation of the entire body in the Lord's Supper. And the Reformers believed that Word and Sacrament went together. Uh, the preaching of the Word, and then as we take the Lord's Supper, this is a visible sermon. It's a visible Word. So we, teach, we taste it, we, we, we touch, taste, we can smell, and we have all of our senses um, engaged in this message of Christ's word. But they also believed, because the preaching was central, it was a central call for Christ's church, but they, ha- they believed that preachers had a tremendous responsibility to ensure that the holiness of God became the central focus of the church's preaching. The Puritans, who came after the Reformation, felt the same way. Uh, the people of God must have a high view of God in order to live a life that honors the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not going to live a life that honors the Lord Jesus Christ if your view of God is very small, if you have a God that you think you can manage on your terms. You won't live a holy life that way. That's why Isaiah later, and even in the Psalms, they make fun of the guy who chops down a tree, carves out an idol, bows down to it, and then with the scraps burns fire so he can cook food. What a puny God! And those who make them become like them. If you have a dumb God, you will be dumb. Hence the problems today. (laughs) If you make an idol that looks like you, heaven help us, right? A one that looks like me, please do not. But that's the problem of idolatry. And the Puritans, so Calvin dies in the 15, I think, 64, around there. When the 1600s hit, the Reformation movement exploded in Europe, and you had Puritans and preachers rising up all over the place, whether it was France, especially in England, because John Knox worked um, there and in Scotland in the northern part. Um, you had uh, Puritans rise up. Puritans, was a, that was a derogatory name. Uh, we were called purists last week at the March for Life because we believe that abortion should be abolished. And, uh, you know, no, no compromise at all. Everyone's prosecuted and we treat this child equally. And they said, well, you're a purist. I said, yeah, that's what they called the Puritans. I'm comfortable with that. Um, but Puritans, when, when that happened and that exploded, there was a 
significant shift because the Gutenberg press had already been invented and Luther's ideas are going out into Europe, Calvin's writing in Geneva, Beza's ministering in Geneva and in France, and it was an explosion of biblical teaching. And I tell you, it really shaped Western culture and it shaped us here in America. But the Puritans believed you needed a high view of God. You need a higher view of, of God than what you have right now. And I'm convinced that a, renewal, a renewed vision for the holiness of God is ever so important for us today. God's kingdom will never come where his name is not considered holy, said R.C. Sproul. God's kingdom will never come where his name is not considered holy. It just won't. Because the holiness of God goes before all of that. If we don't consider God as holy in the, in the purest sense of his perfection, his majesty, then his kingdom won't, become and it won't come. And this is true. There must be a reverential disposition of the people of God towards God in their attitudes every single day. If you're prone to complaining and whining about stuff, and trust me, there's a lot to bemoan. Inflation comes to mind. <laughs> but if there has to be a reverential attitude um, in our prayers. You know, do we, do we approach God with the holiness that's due his name? Um, in our singing, in our singing, do we, do we sing with passion and excitement to glorify the holy, holy, holy God? When we meditate on God's word, all of these things kind of come together and I'll tell you, that to the degree that your, your attitude and, and perspective on the holiness of God, to the degree that it is diminishing, I would argue that the rest of your life is diminishing as well. In various ways. Perhaps you're stuck in a, in a rut. Uh, people often will, will find themselves despondent about things. And, well, do you trust in the sovereignty of God and his holiness or not? And I think it's imperative that we keep in mind who it is we're dealing with, or rather, who is dealing with us. This is the God whose temple is the entire world. The earth is his footstool. His glory is to fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. He is the infinitely powerful one who spoke all things into existence. He is the one whose purity is so perfect that we, were we to take one glimpse into his perfection, we would cease to exist immediately. We are not yet fit for heaven. We, we need glorified bodies. But to behold him, even a slight gaze, would destroy us. There's a reason why you only went into the Holy of Holies, the high priest, once a year. Because if you were to just stroll in there like you belong, you would die immediately. This God is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is the goal of all creation for from him and through him and to him, Romans eleven thirty six. He is the one whose majesty is impeccable, whose counsel is inconceivable. He is the thrice holy God, the self-existent one who appeared to Moses in a burning bush, whose incarnation led to our salvation. And I think that sometimes we get caught up in believing that God doesn't quite have an eye on what it is we're up to. I think we live like that sometimes. God doesn't really have an eye on what I'm doing. 
He's busy with other things like the Middle East. He's not paying attention to what I'm doing. And we think that he only comes around whenever we come around. And because of this, we are prone to having a very, very small view of God, which means that we get quite comfortable in our sin. Sproul says it well again. He said this, God would be perfectly just to allow me to be thrown in prison for life for a crime I didn't commit. I may be innocent before other people, but I am guilty before God. And when we minimize the holiness of God in our day-to-day lives, paying little to no attention to his active presence each day, the result will be a divided heart, a very divided heart and mind, and a life. If we do not behold the majesty of God, fixing our gaze upon him each and every day, we will not be able to see ourselves very easily. We won't. The holiness of God is like a mirror for us. In him, we see his law. We see his grace. We see his sovereignty, his transcendence, his perfection, his immutable person. He's unchanging. And when we look to him, we realize that we do not, in fact, look like that. When we look at God, we see God, but we also see ourselves. And we realize we don't look like that. We don't talk like that. We don't act like that. That is how you grow in your life. And that's ultimately what we want, or at least that's what God wants from us. Um, He wants us to be enamored by him and not preoccupied with ourselves. He wants us to see him so that we might, we might actually see ourselves and our sin. You see, that's ultimately, that's how sanctification works in your life. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. I think a Pur- one of the Puritans said that. It always stuck with me. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. Whether we like him or not, this God is highly exalted, and if we would be holy as he is holy, then we ought not to spend too much time thinking highly of ourselves. See, God wants a holy people. Indeed, he, he, is, he is washing his bride with water and the word. He has baptized us into his family. He's adopted us as sons and daughters. Unless we be tempted to minimize his glory, it is crucial for our living with reformational identity, identity, it's crucial for us to maximize his holiness in our lives, to look upon him with wonder and excitement, to find his son gloriously beautiful and precious. Jesus Christ came to this earth so that the world would become washed with the glory of God. And he has invited you and me into this holiness. Our sins, though they are many, his mercy is indeed more. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We thank you for your word, and we thank you what we learn here in Isaiah. And I ask and I pray that you would help us. Help us to be people who are gazing upon your holiness, who are reminded of who we really are. Help us in our confession of sin. Help us to have the word on our lips. Um, Keep us away from idolatry, the folly of making idols into our image. God, I pray that you would purify your church here at Cross and Crown, but also your church worldwide. Help us to be exuberant in our worship, in our singing, in our prayers. 
And we ask that your holiness would be made more palpable to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.